Hi. My name is Alice, and I am a controlaholic. And now the rest of you are supposed to say to me, Hi, Alice. There you go. Good work, everyone. So we're continuing our four-week series on idols today, and we're calling it Idol Eyes because it's really about where we fix our eyes, where we find our hope in life, and it's about what we worship. And the truth is all of us have idols, and they demonstrate their presence in our lives in a variety of ways, some very serious and some a tad comical. So as I said, I struggle with the idol of control, so I think God likes to remind me of this um, in certain times in my life. So recently, my husband and I flew to um, Washington, D.C. to see our daughter, and we were on that 605 flight out of Waterloo. I love it when my ticket says, Gate 1. I'm like, oh, thank you. Otherwise, I would have been somewhat confused. So we got on the plane, and that British lady who works at the Waterloo Airport, have you ever wondered to yourself, where did she come from? What's her story? She got on our plane. We were fully loaded, and she said, oh, we're a little bit heavy this morning. We're going to need some people to volunteer to step off. No one even looked up from their phone. You know what I mean? So she leaves. And in a few minutes, the pilot comes on the loudspeaker and says, you know, we're not that heavy. So we're going to see if we can just move some things around in the luggage area, and that should work. Okay, I now look up from my phone. And I'm like, we're too heavy, but if we juggle the luggage, that's going to help. And the captain then gets on and says, well, they've given us the green light. So we taxi out to the end of the runway, and I'm not lying to you. The man comes back on and says, we're still too heavy, and the longer runway is closed today. So because we have a short runway, we're just going to sit here and burn off some fuel before we give this a shot. So immediately, without even thinking, I'm bowing down to the idol of control, the myth that I somehow have the power to make things happen the way I want them to happen. And so I grip those armrests real tight as if that is going to help. And I gently whisper that plane into the air, go, 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 as I'm like pulling up on the armrest. Like literally thinking my bicep strength is making us not crash to the ground. This was a few weeks ago. Seriously. And, and you may laugh and even scoff at me and my stupid idol, which is fine. But the reality is that we all bow down and worship something other than God on a daily basis. And God wants those idols gone. God wants our whole heart. The very end of the book of 1 John in the New Testament, this is his very closing statement. He writes, Dear children, keep yourself from idols. And in biblical days, if you were here last week, as Ed taught, people had literal idols, statues of false gods that they worshipped. And we more sophisticated people roll our eyes at that. But our idols, though more nuanced, are equally offensive to God. And the teaching team really liked the definition that Timothy Keller developed as to what an idol is in his book called Counterfeit Gods. And he said, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. 
Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And here's what's so tricky. See, so many of us say that God has our heart. We say it. But what is happening under the surface is that our heart's deepest devotion, when push comes to shove, like when you are on our short runway and your jet is too heavy, when push comes to shove, our heart gets given to something other than God. And this kind of thing is difficult to tease out because idols are very often good things that we've just allowed to become way more significant in our lives than they should be. And when we do that, we push God out of his rightful place and into a secondary spot where he should never be. And here's the warning from scripture on this. In the book of Jonah, Jonah is in a dark place, a.k.a. the belly of the whale. And he's praying this prayer. And in the midst of this prayer, he says to God, but I believe he's also saying it to himself, Jonah 2, verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols, he says, turn away from God's love for them. I love the older translation that says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Idols keep us from God and they keep us from God's best. That is their primary role and we allow them to do it all the time. So a question I was called to answer this morning is how do we get a sense of what our idols are? How do we name them? And so, you know, I I came up with four really helpful questions that we can use to try to tease out what some idols might be in our life. And if we ask God to help us answer these questions, honestly, he will. And the first question is, what do you worry about most? And when you are worried, where do you fix your eyes? On God or on something else? See, that's where that whole runway ordeal was so eye-opening for me again. It's okay to be afraid. But the question is, what do we do with our fear? Who do we turn to when we're scared? Psalm 56 verse 3 says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you, God. But my eyes went right to my idol of control at that moment rather than to God. What do you worry about most? Second, what do you use to comfort yourself when things get bad or life gets difficult? What do you use to cope? Do you buy things? Do you drink too much? Do you pinch pennies? Do you compulsively watch sports? Do you gamble online? Do you look at porn? Do you obsessively look at Pinterest in order to avoid your actual real life? Do you work 80 hours? What is it that you do to help you cope when life gets difficult? Whatever that it is, just might be an idol in your life. What do you think about when you're alone? Where does your mind wander when you have time and stillness? Someone once said, your religion is what you do with your solitude. And last but not least, whom or what do you trust for your future? In what ways do you think, as soon as blank, then I'll be fine. Then I'll be happy. As soon as blank happens, I'll be content. My life will be good enough. Then I'll worship God. Whatever you fill that blank in with might just be an idol. And there are literally as many idols in this world as there are things. But in this series, we want to explore the deep idols, the idols of the heart, out of which all the other idols sprout. And these 
idols are significance, greed, comfort, and control. And we, when we devote our hearts to these things, we are in idol territory. So we're going to look at control this morning because I am in charge and I said so. <laughs> so first let me say this. Having some sense of control in life is a good thing. I mean, it is not terrible to want to know how your days are going to go, to have some rituals, some routines, some regimens, and even self-discipline. I mean, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. But here's where it gets tricky. When our life starts to revolve around issues of control, when we place our hope and our trust in our own efforts to control situations or people, even to control God, rather than our trust in God, that's when we end up with an idol on our hands. So let me try to explain just a little bit. This is not a ex- complete list, but let me just tell you a little bit about those of us who struggle with the idol of control. If you struggle with this, you might have an excessive need to clean or organize or keep everything in its place. Those of us who struggle with this like to keep a tight grip on our own lives, but we also struggle with a need to fix other people's lives, even if they are not interested in our help. We are exceptional backseat drivers, advice givers, armchair quarterbacks. We yell at refs and umpires, even though they can't hear us because they're on the television. We yell at eight and under soccer games at children because they're not playing the game right. See, and I think parents are especially prone to this issue of control. So all of you with your sweet, sweet little ones who just you just baptized, hear me. It starts out good. Helping your child to grow, protecting them from harm, controlling their environment. But it can end up real bad. And in the idle zone, when we don't gradually and appropriately give up control of their lives to our children as they grow. I almost ruined my relationship with my son, William, because of my overly controlling attitude in his life toward academics. Will was what his preschool teachers called a self-directed learner. So for William, in his mind, if a teacher gave him an assignment and he wasn't interested, it became optional. And the schools didn't help by creating an infinite campus thing online so that I could look at all of the schoolwork he turned in every single day. And so in his junior year in high school, I was just hounding and hounding and hounding this kid about missing her late assignments. And the more I hounded him, the further away that boy stepped from me. And I saw it happening, but I couldn't stop myself because my need to control was out of control. And listen, parents, I may have been technically right. You know, turn your assignments in. But what if I allowed that to damage our relationship? That would have been so short-sighted and wrong. So finally, my husband stepped in, and with the fiercest look I've ever seen in his eyes, he stopped me dead in my tracks, and he said, you keep this up, and you are going to crush his soul. I didn't speak to either of them for 48 hours, (laughs) because I had to decide. When I was able to let go and give up control, my son was able to thrive, as he explains it now. Mom... You got out of my business, and I got my business together. Those were not the words he used, but that's the appropriate church language. (laughs) This is so hard, parents. 
we can get really attached to our plans, our schedule, our regimen. We struggle with control if our flight gets delayed or canceled, and it feels like the end of the world. We hate random disruptions, like when people stop over unannounced. We can fake it, like, hey, so glad you dropped by, but inside we hate it, and we kind of hate you in the moment. We like formulas, we like black and white answers, we like it when teachers put fill-in-the-blank outlines in the bulletin. We find ourselves saying super bossy prayers to God, giving him every detail we want him to manage, and also giving him explicit rules on outcomes that we will accept. We have a hard time waiting. We want everything to go according to our plan, and we want it now. Our greatest fear in life is uncertainty, and our hugest problem emotion is worry. Anybody recognize yourself? And better yet, do you recognize someone you know? Who all recognizes someone they know? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. I'm not lying to you. Raise them. Raise them. All right, everybody who raised your hand, you also have the issue of control. So So one great example of this from Scripture is King Saul, um, the very first king over Israel. Um, God did not want Israel to have kings because he wanted to be their king, but they wanted one just like the rest of the nations. So the very first king was King Saul, and he had a huge issue with trying to always take things into his own control, manipulate outcomes, manipulate circumstances, and in the end he ruined everything. So in 1 Samuel chapter 10, we see the priest Samuel anointing Saul as king. And in chapter 10, starting with verse 8, Samuel gives Saul this very explicit instruction. He says this to him. He said, go down ahead of me to Gilgal, and I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. That's what the priest does. The king does not do this. But you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. You flip to 1 Samuel chapter 13, and we immediately watch Saul bow down to his idol of control. He's in Gilgal, and this is what's happening. It says right here in chapter 13, starting with second half of verse 7. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offerings. Bring me the fellowship offerings. And Saul did what a king is not supposed to do. He offered up the burnt offering. And I love this. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. And listen, all the excuses start, right? I had to do it. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. In other words, I had to take control. Thus begins the downhill slide of Paul's re- or Saul's reign as king. Saul failed to trust Samuel, who was God's mouthpiece, and therefore failed to trust God. And this, I believe, is what the idol of control has right underneath it, this unwillingness or inability to trust God with one's life. 
And underneath that unwillingness to trust, and you could hear it in this story at the very beginning, underneath that unwillingness to trust is usually fear. Fear that God really won't come through for us. Fear that God is not good. Fear that God is not in control. Fear that something bad will happen if we don't take things into our own hands. Fear at the deepest level is what drives many of us to bow our knees to the idol of control. And here's the truth about worshiping this idol. It's just agonizing. It's just exhausting. It turns people away from us. It breeds anxiety and worry and panic and stress. And it puts so much pressure on us to think we have to know how everything should turn out and to, and to expend all our effort to make things go the way we want them to go. And the saddest thing about this idol, the scriptures tell us, is that it is only a delusion. It is not profitable to us. This idol is worthless. In fact, it has no real existence. When we worship the idol of our own control, we are putting our hope in something that doesn't even exist. What a waste. But Jesus offers us a way out. He is the way out. He invites us to come to him. This is Jesus' primary invitation. Come to me and hand me the reins of your life. All of you who are weary and heavily burdened, hand them to me. Give me control of your life and I will give you rest. And if you're like me, you think to yourself, well, that sounds really nice, Alice, but how do I do that? It is not easy. But there are a few things I think we can start to do. And the first one is that we can fix our eyes on Jesus. The very first thing Jesus wants me to do when I'm so tempted to put my eyes instead on on my own control of something is to switch my focus from my own measly efforts to his incredible and trustworthy power and goodness. I have to make that exchange. I have to move where I'm fixing my eyes because I can't just try to squelch the controlling behavior. I have to focus on a new thing, and that new thing has to be Jesus because he is the one who is ultimately in control of all things, even my tiny little life, even your tiny little life. Hebrews 12.2 says, And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. And after we fix our eyes on Jesus, we need to practice surrendering. This is the hardest one for us control freaks. We need to practice giving up our life, giving up our circumstances, giving up our fears, giving up our worries, giving up everything to him. We have to surrender. David Benner says this, the English word surrender carries the implications of putting one's full weight on someone or something. Listen to this. It involves letting go. A release of effort, tension, and fear. And it involves trust. 
And then he gives this illustration of what trust looks like and what surrendering looks like. And it has saved my life these last few days. He says this, floating is a good illustration of this. And I brought a picture so you could imagine this with me. Floating is a good illustration of this because you cannot float until you let go. Remember this from swim lessons? Floating is putting your full weight on the water and trusting you will be supported. It is letting go of your natural instincts to fight against sinking. Only then do you discover you are supported. When we are worshiping the idol of control, we are not like that boy. We are like little kids like this next picture I'll put up who cannot float because we're always sticking our head up out of the water. Go ahead in the next slide. And we're flailing around and we're screaming, help, I'm drowning, right? How exhausting is that life? But what God wants us to do, if you could go back to the much better picture, is to lay the full weight of our lives on him, to put our head back, to give up fighting, to give up screaming around, and to trust him like a relaxed swimmer, trust the water to hold them up. And can I tell you this last week, I've been struggling, and so sometimes to get this through my thick head, as I walk around my home, I just lay down like that boy. My dog comes over and stares at me like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, I'm surrendering, Stella, leave me alone. So if you struggle, I'm swearing to you guys, just lay down sometimes. And you will find over time you are supported by a force greater than your own efforts. And the last thing we need to do is live with empty hands. Every day. Do you remember what Jonah said? Those of us who cling to worthless idols forfeit forfeit the grace that could be ours. When we surrender, when we open up our hands, when we release all the false gods and idols from our grip, when we release outcomes to God, when we stop clinging to those things that only God can provide for us, and when we practice living with empty hands, then God can fill us with himself. Miroslav Volf, who's a, a theologian at Yale, said this. He said, faith in God means empty hands held open for him and him alone to fill with himself. So instead of clinging to our own self-created idol of control in a world that is so far beyond our own efforts to control, and instead of forfeiting the peace of Christ that could be ours, would you open up your hands and live in complete trust that when God's ready to fill them, he will. So we fix our eyes on Jesus We surrender control of our life to him. And we live every day, every minute, every second sometimes with empty hands, trusting that he will always fill them with more than we could ever ask or imagine. Let's pray. God, the world is so scary and we're so small. And life is hard. And it's so easy for us to think that if we could just get control of everything, we could make it all turn out the way we want to. And in doing so, we fail to understand that we are bowing our knee to something and someone other than you. Forgive us. Help us. Help us fix our eyes on Jesus. Help us surrender every single thing that we're trying to carry. And help us live our lives with empty hands and complete trust that you will fill them with yourself. Amen.